Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Regenerative aquaculture. How do we farm the oceans regeneratively? We all heard of the massive issues of fishing, and especially the industrial-scale extractive way we're basically emptying the oceans. So the solution is very simple. Simply farm the fish, also known as aquaculture. But also there, there are enormous challenges with unsustainable feed, concentrated pollution, and commodified markets, just to name a few. It very much sounds like the rest of the agriculture and food industry. So what can be done? Join us today in a deep dive, pun intended, into the world of regenerative aquaculture. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode. Today, a very special one where we go deep into the blue side of the planet. Today, we're wel- I'm welcoming James to the show, the founder of Seatopia, a pioneering regenerative aquaculture business for the direct-to-consumer markets. Welcome, James. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and uh, be part of this conversation. And to start with the question I always start, but with a very subtle but still fundamental difference. So not why soil, but why the oceans? Why farming in the oceans? How do you end up there? As many people in the in the farming industry can say, I grew up on a farm, then I went away and I came back, etc. But the chances you grew up on a on, on an ocean farm are are very small. So I'm I'm gonna guess here that wasn't the, the the reason you ended up here. Like how did you ended up caring so much about the oceans and working in with them so much? Uh, that's funny that you, uh, position the question that way, because while I didn't grow up on an ocean farm, I did grow up practically in the ocean. And I guess that has shaped a lot of my direction in life. Um, my father was a lifeguard. So I grew up, uh, just at the beach every single day. My mother worked at SeaWorld at the time. So I was, uh, you know, fascinated by the aquariums and I really wanted to be involved in, uh, oceanography, marine biology, and particularly the, the big mammals. The cetaceans were so interesting to me. So I started volunteering at an aquarium as an adolescent where we, they had, uh, this was a really unique aquarium on a, estuary on a wetland that used to have a healthy population of steelhead. And so in this aquarium, they had a 
a demonstration rehabilitation project or, where they're actually breeding steelhead and showing how the steelhead would uh, go from freshwater to saltwater and back and forth. And uh, the principles of breeding fish for rehabilitation first introduced me to the principles of aquaculture and and I guess fast forward many years later, um, I was able to get more directly involved uh, with aquaculture. Um, so yeah, I, I got in, involved with it, I guess, uh, because of uh, a bit of nurture and, and my fortunate, um, you know, being born uh, in a family that was connected to the ocean. And, but I think we're all born kind of in that space, even if we're, as long as we're on the blue planet, we should be thinking about, you know, how, how can we efficiently work with the blue planet? Because whether it's farming the ocean or in, in freshwater, there's a lot of, there's a lot more water on this planet uh, than there is land. So how do we work with that efficiently? So you basically were born in, in, in the ocean, but then still the step from, Going there, I mean, there were many different routes you could take. You could become, I don't know, a professional server or an activist really caring about the oceans. You could really focus on plant-based fish food. You could focus fish food, not meal. You could focus on uh, many things on, on the pollution side of things, but you decided to focus on the food side and take quite a, I would really say neglected route. Like how do we get regenerative aquaculture, those two words together, we don't hear very often, for sure I'm getting emails now, uh, but we don't hear it very often while well, we should. Like, what was that trigger to regenerative aquaculture? What, what triggered you into the food side of things and, and starting to answer or at least ask many, many very complicated questions in, in the aquaculture sector? There's, I'm in a contrarian space, I would say, because most people believe hook, line and sinker, this, uh, romanticized story of of commercial fishing of going to the ocean and being able to extract seafood and wild caught seafood is this beautiful thing and and there is you know if if done sustainably is 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 the most romantic and beautiful way to do it uh but when i was studying ecology and and marine biology you know textbooks are talking early about the potential of aquaculture done right to create healthy seafood in a controlled environment where you control the feed and you control the exposure to or, or to toxins you can in the same way that we can raise tomatoes or chicken or cattle done right you can produce an absolutely beautiful product that's clean that's nutrient dense that's free of exposure to toxins and the principles of aquaculture have been there from the beginning but um you know i guess i'm just kind of an optimist and i you know reading about the the principles of aquaculture very early on didn't end up aligning with my uh with the reality so if you as a consumer uh, are looking for sustainable farm-raised seafood. It's kind of a murky, confusing place. So I remember at one point um, feeling 
that I didn't want to go to a sushi bar because I didn't want to condone industrial scale commercial fishing, knowing the challenges that are being placed on uh, our oceans from industrial scale extraction of wild caught fisheries. I didn't want to condone that. So what was the alternative? Having a, uh, a foundation on the principles of ecology and uh, aquaculture being a methodology for raising fish. Um, where were those good fish farms? And there just wasn't enough uh, information about that. There wasn't enough um, detailed uh, certification processes, transparency. And so I actually went and started visiting farms and wanted to find out which farms were actually producing high quality seafood and doing it in a manner that was in line with my values. And so I had, I actually went to Mexico. So I, I've, Grew up mostly in Southern California, lived in Hawaii for a while. And, and funny enough, you mentioned the professional surfing. I actually thought surfing was the most important thing in, in the world for a number of years. Uh, lived on the North Shore of Oahu and pursued that for, for a bit. And, and that, that's part of the, that's part of the, the reason that I learned as much as I did about, uh, commercial fishing, uh, from a number of, of the relationships that I built out there. And, Wanting to uh, do something that was directly related to the oceans after having uh, sold a another consumer product good uh, business that I had at an energy bar company that was uh, a, a quinoa based energy bar uh, that we were sourcing from these fair trade farms and in. in Peru and Bolivia, and we had all of the certifications for USD organic, and we were selling it uh, in Whole Foods nationwide. That was interesting, and it was it was on some levels it was uh, um, of value to me, but I really wanted to be involved with the oceans, and I wanted to be involved in food systems because food has always been really important to me and my wife. It's been very important to her. It's been just one of these things that, um, that I, I, I've cared a lot about, I guess, um, probably stemming from health. And then I think the fish part, yeah, the fish part is fascinating, especially the farming part, because that contrarian piece you mentioned at the beginning, I think many people sort of, um, easily click into that thought of fish farming is bad like you said and if we just um all buy sustainably fished wild caught we we will be fine and and that's probably a bit of a naive or very naive view so the question is and and at the same time it's not naive i think to think at all that most of or a big chunk of the fish farming space um is definitely not run with regenerative principles let's say it like that like there's there's a lot of non-transparency and and a lot of chemicals and a lot of input and a lot of just like farming is 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 many cases not done regeneratively but you're saying i found or i went out to, to look for and and where did you start like i went out to look for the regenerative fish farms where are the ones that are taking input seriously taking feed seriously taking uh, high quality sushi grade uh, um, work seriously where do you even start when you I mean you said i went to mexico but 
where do you even, I mean, it's not that you Google this stuff. Like, how do you find the first one? Maybe the first one leads to others, but that first one, do you remember how you found it and, and how it was going there? Yeah. Um, Southern California is a, is a nice place for, uh, being involved in the, the food scene. There's a, there's a, a farm to table movement of restaurants that, uh, has, is really connected to farms. And, uh, on most menus, you know, at farm table restaurants, they'll reference where their tomatoes and their chickens come from. Uh, but seafood is, is kind of a missing piece. Uh, they'll kind of reference, uh, sometimes they'll reference that it's wild caught or, uh, sometimes they'll reference the name of the fisherman, but they're not going into more detail on that. So, um, I went to Mexico to visit some farms that were raising fish because there are no fish farms in the ocean in California. It's not currently legal. There's no legal fish farming in, uh, in the oceans in this region. You can do it on land. Um, but just south of the border, there's a tuna ranch that I had become familiar with because it's next to a, a, uh, a renowned surf spot, a spot called Salsipuedes. And they have these huge open ocean, um, floating, uh, PVC circular, uh, pens that, that hold these giant nets and they put tuna in there. That is not actually a sustainable model they're essentially ranching a wild species and then feeding it wild caught sardines but i kept going further because i was familiar with that yeah i've heard people mentioning tuna farming as a sort of trying to farm a tiger and and that's probably not like as is in first of all it's not easy and second the, the feed in the feed feed to uh, um, food ratio is feed conversion ratio or fcr is very 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 high uh, but we want to eat tuna, so that that's what the market creates. But you, that was your first exposure. You okay? Let's go further south and and see if there are other models. Yeah, I was I was aware of that, but I wanted to see it and just to be a to be in that place to swim in pens like that and to have. How is that? Like, what's just to just to 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 give people? I mean, we're on Audi, obviously, but a visual clue or a journey, like. You go into a pen like that. First of all, how big are the, the pens? And then how, how many fishes, more or less, because I don't think there, there are exact numbers, but how many are there in it? Like, what is the size we need to, to, to keep having our mind as we're listening to this? 40 meters across. Wow. Um, would be, could how be the, the, and similar depth. Uh, so, I mean, the, one of the most beautiful things about farming the ocean is the potential for three-dimensional space you know in in uh, terrestrial farming you're farming on land and you have limited resources but when you're farming the ocean you have depth right so the the volume inside of that pen is actually quite significant you can have a lot of creatures biomass. in there yeah. the biomass is, is massive um and the the experience of swimming in that, I mean, is, is literally like swimming in the most incredible aquarium that you've ever, that you've ever seen. I mean, uh, you could literally be swimming in a circle of 150 to 200 pound torpedoes. You know, nature has evolved these tuna that are warm blooded creatures that 
that have the ability to swim, you know, 30, 40 miles per hour. And you're, and they, you know, if they wanted to, they could, they, they could easily kill you. They could drive them that, you know, full speed right into you, but they just stay right at the perimeter of the, the of, of, you know, where they feel safe. And they just kind of circle around and they look at you and they're intelligent creatures. They're looking at you. They're thinking about you. Um, it, I had a lot of mixed emotions being there. It was a very sad and awesome place to, to be, to see that tuna ranch and to see how it's working. And it's not to say that there is no buddy farming tuna. There are people that are farming tuna from eggs. But this is a tuna ranch. Uh, but still the problem, as you mentioned, is the FCR, the, the, the feed conversion ratio of these high energy, warm blooded creatures. They spend so much energy, uh, that to feed them, uh, it, it's just, it's not an efficient, uh, conversion ratio of energy inputs. Um, it's something like 20 to one, 20 pounds of feed in to grow one pound of, bi- of biomass. And they're very finicky about what they eat. In fact, um, most tuna f- farms or ranches in the world are still feeding them whole, ra- whole sardines from the ocean. There are some people that have developed a, a pelletized feed, but they, it's very difficult to get them to eat it. In some cases, they're actually painting like what looks like an eyeball on these little sausages in order to get them to eat it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's not ideal. If you're, I looking, think is, is if you're looking for a model, yeah. right. If you're looking for a model of what's an efficient, uh, fish to raise in the, uh, it's, it's not tuna. Um, but there are other creatures. If you look at, for example, um, the feed conversion ratio portion of it, um, what inputs are the lowest are going to be things like, uh, filter feeders or, or plants that don't require any, uh, inputs from humans that we don't have to go out there and feed them. They're just filtering from the ocean or converting. Plus they don't move so much, so they don't burn so much energy that you don't have to keep them in nets. Like filter feeders are the uh, the bivalves the mussels etc the the oysters as well yeah and and they clean yeah so that from an energy perspective that's like it doesn't get better than that and kelp obviously on the plant side if we the whole the whole plant family uh, in the ocean is is fascinating not only because of speed but also because of health and because they look spectacular <laughs> and then there's some unappreciated ones like sea cucumbers that are, you know, they're going to be on the, on the bottom that are going to be cleaning the sand. So if you have, uh, an integrated multi-trophic aquaculture system or IMTA, which, uh, is essentially a permaculture model in the ocean, you have, uh, a symbiotic relationship between uh, your filter feeders, your crustaceans, your kelps, your sea vegetables, and your fish. So what are the uh, members of that ecosystem that you want to cohabitat your concession or your farm? Uh, so as I kept going further south, I was able to find a handful of other farms in Mexico. There's actually quite a bit of aquaculture. Mexico's, in some ways, I would say more advanced in aquaculture than the United States, primarily because Mexico already sold a lot of its fishing rights to the Chinese and and kind of is on the pendulum swing of trying to figure out how to create a uh, sustainable uh, financial uh, model for uh, fisheries in Mexico because they... You know, they went from having beautiful, healthy, 
uh, fishing culture and, uh, and economies to, uh, selling off a lot of their resources, having it being overfished and then having local communities now dependent on subsidies. So, uh, they're now investing quite a bit in aquaculture, some good, some not so good, but they're definitely evolving. I would say more rapidly even than parts of the United States. And, and did you find one of those? It sounds perfect on paper. Obviously, you have the the 3D space, you have the plants, you have the the bivalves, the crustaceans that clean, you have the sea cucumbers, and you have the fish. And and but is that being done? Um, I wouldn't say at scale, but is it being done like in practice at a certain at a commercial scale yet? Because I think for many people, even this this word um, of the the multi species, uh, the integration of multi species is new. Like, is that did you find? things there that were like, wow, okay, I didn't know this existed as sort of the complete opposite to uh, the, the wrenching wild tigers in, in the tuna farm. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. <laughs> uh, so at commercial scale, there's there's not anyone doing it with an integrated multiculture, multi-trophic uh, site uh, in Mexico, but there's a lot, all the components are there. So uh, there's people doing kelp, there's, there's algaes, there's, uh, mussels, there's scallops, there's oysters, there's, uh, striped bass, there's compachi. So different species of fin fish are, are going to have a very different, uh, feed conversion ratio. So for example, compachi or sediolo rebeliana, which is a type of yellowtail has a feed conversion ratio closer to one to one or even lower depending on the feed components. So, I ended up uh, spending a number of years working with this Compachi farm in the Sea of Cortez, uh, which is uh, the, the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula on the eastern side there, where they're raising this Compachi, which is a, essentially uh, an almacojac or Sediola Rodiana, that grows at a very efficient rate and can and can be adapted to eating. Uh, a feed that is a much more sustainable. So an algae-based feed that can be grown regeneratively um, can be a high feed component for the omega-3s, uh, the oils, and the proteins that it needs. Uh, combining that with either land-based proteins, um, it could be uh, a variety of different sources. Um, it really has the ability to create a uh, a sustainable feed for a fish that grows very efficiently. And then as long as that, even if it isn't monoculture in this case, done at low density in a good, in a well-sited location, I think is a very important part of creating a healthy food system. So this farm, for example, does low density farming is, uh, sited in an area that is, uh, far from industrial pollutants, deep water, tons of current. In fact, you know, twice a day of the amount of, of, of tide that flushes through this, you have sometimes, you know, two to three knots of, of current flowing through this. Which is important to, to keep 
things flowing, like the, the manure basically of, of the fish to keep it flowing out, making sure uh, disease and pathogens don't get a chance like you. It's better to be exactly uh, diluting it with a lot of seawater twice a day than being in a closed environment unless then you need to start. Super important. And but then do you get to do that 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 health piece you mentioned because that's what then everybody says yeah of course you can feed it with a lot of different things you can feed it with plants I mean there are, there are fish that eat everything but then it doesn't get to that healthy omega six omega three ratio fish that we're looking for because we're looking for the omega threes and and then everybody says yeah but then it's better to go to wild um, like what do you say to people I mean you get this question for sure all the time like how do you answer the health question of farmed very very well versus wild that we have no clue where it comes from it just depends on the feed right so the the evolution of feed in aquaculture kind of follow the trajectory of first let's feed them exactly what they eat in the wild which is sardines anchovies anchovetas mackerel but there's a finite resource in the ocean that the underlying issue is there's a finite resource and the gross production of wild caught seafood has plateaued there's not a, we're not going to find a new well of fish in the ocean we've plateaued already so we can't keep extracting so and it probably is going down because in many places it's collapsing and it's we can wait for for the, the moment we cannot keep throwing sardines into a, a tuna pen yeah. no no and we should probably eat the sardines directly if we end up doing that anyway. Like there's that, that there's that really weird eat lower on the food chain thing. So that that's the first phase. And then the second phase is okay, we replace it with something else. Let's replace it with soy, etc., to to fatten the fish. Exactly. So it evolved from okay, let's mitigate the the pressure on the bait fish and give them land-based proteins like the soys and the corns. Um and then that had a direct effect on the omega-3, omega-6 levels because, again, fish don't produce omega-3s. It, with a rare exception, there is only a handful of fish in the entire world that produce their own omega-3s. It comes from the feed. So uh, if you're feeding them whole fish, they're getting their omega-3s. In fact, in the early days of, of farming, uh, there was... Uh, a lot of studies done that quantified even higher levels of omega threes in farm fish than you saw in wild caught fish because they were just being ex- they're they're get, getting such a, a, a healthy diet. But you were extracting a lot of these resources in order to feed them. Not that wild fish don't also eat the same amount, if not more, because they're expending more energy. But regardless, if you're going to scale aquaculture to feed the world, how do we do it efficiently? So uh, transitioning from anchovetas or bait fish to land-based resources but then uh, like soy and corn but then how do you evolve the pro the the omega-3 omega-6 and uh, protein resources um the underlying source the original source of the omega-3s comes from algae so an algae-based feed is going to provide the actual omega-3 uh content that the fish needs so uh, growing different types of, of algaes, microalgaes, to be used in feed is something that is currently evolving. There's a lot of investment actually happening in the production, the commercial and industrial scale production of different types of microalgaes for aquaculture and other industries because you can now uh, 
feeding a kampachi, for example, an algae-based diet, get even more omega-3s than a wild-caught fish. So it really wow. just depends on the actual components that are going in the feed. The challenge is the cost because still there's a lot of subsidies in wild-caught fisheries. For anybody that doesn't know, there, there are massive studies. I think Planet Tracker has, has a great one. I will link it below. Like on the, the amount of money we throw at, we burn. In, in industrial scale extractive fishing is just mind boggling. It would never be able to pay for itself if we all, I mean, collective society, <laughs> including uh, the Chinese government and others wouldn't be heavily subsidizing their fuel, their boats and everything else. Like it's, it's really, really crazy. Uh, it's a completely bankrupt industry unless it would be subsidized by all of us. European Union, US, uh, the whole thing has been, and it's, yeah, not many people know that. So that's been subsidized. And of course, you're competing because you have to grow the feet as well. But the wild one just goes out and, and get the mackerel that has been eating other fishes that have been eating algae. So that's that's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenge. It's, you know, as long as there's still oil in the ground, people are going to mine it. And, and that's still kind of a challenge with, with wild caught fisheries. Um, but the price is coming down. One of the interesting things that happened over... Uh, the last, let's say, six months with the price of, of petroleum uh, skyrocketing is the uh, affordability and uptake of algae-based feeds became a, mo- a lot uh, more affordable and uh, has increased. There's been more use of it by more farms, and that's really helping scale. So the economies of scale are are shifting, and that's something that we're really trying to promote is, is – uh, alternative feeds that are based on things like algae, microalgae, but there's also, you know, single cell fermentation uh, uh, and of various other organisms, bacteria and yeast. Uh, there's insects. So there's a, there's a whole evolution in the feed. And to just say that farm fish are not as healthy as wild caught fish is, is one of those generalizations that you just can't make. It's like, it'd be like saying that farmed tomatoes are not as healthy as wild-caught tomatoes well it really depends on where that wild-caught tomato was planted yeah, and yeah. what it was exposed to and the same th- and, and the same thing with the farm you know what what how was it farmed and then the question of of health yeah the nuance is is but the nuance in in farming is is not there either like you you continue to see these diagrams of of the impact of um, or the water consumption of a kilo of beef. And it's like, yeah, it sort of depends if that, that cow was outside in, in Ireland where it rains. Like, how do you calculate the water? Um, but just to leave that for another discussion. But then, then the natural question becomes, okay, if the fish get their healthy omega three from the algae, why don't just eat the algae directly? What's the, or is there a transformation happening in the fish that makes it more accessible, more absorbable, more tasty for sure? Um, but what's the, the reason to have to in, sort of introduce that extra step? It could be a cultural thing. It could be we just don't eat algae or we, we, it will take a while and we are eating fish. So let's, let's use it as a, almost a vehicle. But what's your, like, like, what's your answer? I'm asking the very obvious questions. Like later we're getting to the investment side of things, but like, what's the reason to, to use the fish as a vehicle for the omega three? I think it's mostly just culture. I mean, I, I personally put a little bit of spirulina in my water and I take a couple of chlorella tablets, but it's not that delicious. Uh, it's going to take quite a lot of work to make that more attractive, uh, for consumers to eat. 
um, the the conversion of that into fish creates uh, ancillary benefits as well. So I think that uh, it, you know if we're in this space of trying to create healthy food systems where we're raising you know commercially producing uh, algaes to feed fish and shrimp and uh, mussels and uh, the, the whole myriad of other of other species that can work together and create healthy ecosystems. It also has the ancillary benefit uh, to the environment, right? So the environmental services provided by a well-sited, integrated, um, multi-trophic aquaculture or permaculture in the ocean benefits not just the end consumer that's eating it also benefits the environment because it's cleaning the environment. It's creating a habitat for other uh, wild uh, and natural species and it's creating jobs and economies. So I think that there's that multiplier effect when you create healthy food systems. Because that's, I think, the big piece here, like to regenerate. I think we we easily forget how, just as we forget on land, honestly, how degraded the land is and how degraded the oceans are like how abundant they used to be. If you hear, like not even so long ago, I think 100 plus years, like how many fish there were in the Mediterranean or how many fish there were, or like the kelp forest in California, like the stories are there. Maybe they're a bit exaggerated, but even if they're half or, or 20% of what they 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 wrote, it's it's must have been an extraordinary abundance of life. So there's a very strong argument that you just made, like how to restore that while producing an economic outcome while producing food that is being sold and bought and eat, etc. And and so that piece of regeneration, I think, is 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 often forgotten in, okay, well, let's just get some algae pills, um, because that's just not going to regenerate anything except for maybe part of your, your body. So after working a couple of years with that fish farm, that word is doing was doing the, the, the right things and, and pushing on that, like what made you set up Cetopia? Like why, why was that a natural next step? It was a, it was a vision for the scalability of the distribution and, uh, and transparent communication. So initially I was bringing these fish to farm to table restaurants, uh, throughout Southern California. How difficult was it to sell it? It was very easy. Because why the quality of the fish was so much better than the current system. So the seafood supply chain is really built on the concept of moving a highly perishable commodity as quickly as possible. Um, and that's generally done through multiple layers of of resellers, master importers and distributors and, and, and smaller distributors and just moving these commodities through these buckets. And it's quite difficult with highly perishable items, especially when you're talking about wild caught seafood that sometimes is caught, uh, in, uh, unpredictable quantities. So for example, if a purse seining boat comes across a breeding aggregation uh, or spawning event and catches, you know, a massive uh, breeding aggregation could be, you know, multiple schools coming together uh, and catches, you know, an enormous quantity of pollock or cod or whatever, brings it to market, it kind of floods the market with all this product. 
this fresh perishable product needs to move efficiently throughout the market. So what tends to happen is, is product doesn't have traceability because it's moving through so many hands and being put into these generalized buckets where if there's not a market for this product. They sometimes are just going to rename it something else and just move it. There's a lot of, uh, of studies that have, have quantified that the, the, the fish you get on your plate is not the fish that's on the menu. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, it's a very high number. I think it's in the high forties or even, even more like it's, it's quite like one in two or probably more of the fish you order is actually not the fish you order. Yeah. It's, which is understandable in a commodity focused market that's just focused on shipping it as fast as possible to plates and, and, because you lose the quality. So it was easy to sell because you could very predictably get it to them, obviously, because it's not that far. And it, you know, the slaughter schedule, let's say, because the harvest schedule, because you know when the fish are ready. And I'm imagining the taste and quality was just very stable and off the chart. Yeah, the, the quality was just much better than anything that was available anywhere else, especially on a sort of consistent basis. And then to to boot you know we were bringing chefs to the farm you know bringing a chef to a farm where you know maybe they've you know they've they've visited a an a cattle farm or, or a pig farm or you know and, and had the experience of you know following the journey to the, their plate on on those proteins but to do it with with fish was something that was out of sight out of mind for so many people so we created this this authentic connection to where their seafood was coming from and gave them the chance to swim in this aquarium, you know, swim with a school of, you know, 5,000 beautiful fish in, in crystal clear turquoise water. The, 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 the experience was, was spectacular and, and, and it was, a, and it definitely worked. And we were able to develop probably one of the most trusted specialty seafood distribution businesses in Southern California because of this direct relationship with high quality farms. And so we, over the years, we started working with multiple farms in Mexico and then in Peru and then Chile and just kind of one at a time bringing in these, these different relationships, trying to identify what are the best farms in the world and bringing them to the best chefs. A lot of the Michelin star chefs and, and, you know, being, being based in Los Angeles, a lot of these like celebrity TV chefs kind of were really stoked to work with the product that allowed their farm to table menu to authentically also tell a story on their seafood. But the scalability of that model was actually quite limited because while there are a lot of farm to table restaurants, there's uh, very few national distribution channels for farm to table products that uh, can really move the needle. So as an example, one of the largest, uh, farm to table restaurant groups that we had brought to the farm was a group called Tender Greens, which, uh, really cared about where their products was coming from. But as Tender Greens grew, their business model changed instead of allowing each chef to make the decisions on their buying, it switched to a national buyer. And then the national bar buyer was more conscientious of the volume discounts that were going to be applied by choosing slightly different proteins. And then eventually it changed to being somebody that was probably more of like a, a, a controller or CFO and had less connection to the consumer's demands or concerns or different incentives and motives. And that is 
one of the best examples of a farm to table restaurant group that, that we were able to, to bring to the farm, the, you know, the more middle of the road for, uh, restaurant groups, they, the, the disconnection happened really soon. And there just wasn't the same motive to get the most sustainable product as opposed to, you know, save a million dollars a year by, you know, you know, saving 25 cents per unit. So that challenge of who actually is the decision maker and who really cares always came back to the consumer seems to care more. So I knew that a direct consumer model was going to get the product to the people who care and create that feedback loop. So Seatopia was this idea that, well, maybe one day consumers will care enough about seafood to, to be able to pay what it actually costs and get it to them delivered at home in an authentic way that isn't just, you know, wrapping it in styrofoam and calling it sustainable seafood. So Seatopia was this idea that kind of was on the back burner and kind of like a, a business plan that sat in, in my, in a circle of friends for a number of years until COVID actually created the impetus in the, in the space to, to justify it. So as restaurants closed, uh, during COVID, uh, you know, you have these farms around the world that have been investing in best in class feed and handling and low density farming it's an expensive way to do it and you have these living creatures in the water that required to be fed and they no longer had a sales channel because the farm table the, the 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 restaurants were not buying and these fish need needed to to eat so you know what's the future the crystal ball didn't really have a vision for when those restaurants were going to come back. So I really pushed uh, the Cetopia model forward in order to continue to create a supply chain that would continue to support and reward the farms that were, that were really innovating. And the cool thing about it is that we've actually opened up a much better sales channel that creates that feedback loop and is much more scalable. So the vision for Cetopia now is not just to support those handful of farms and, and continue to, uh, you know, keep that going, but is to, to be a, a marketplace for farms around the world and eventually be able to, to create the sort of feedback loop for consumer demand and, and fostering regenerative aquaculture on a global scale. So that's really where Cetopia has evolved to is, is creating this platform through this subscription model that gives a long-term uh, in, investment and, and commitment to the farms that we're going to keep buying these products and allow them to know for sure that there's a buyer who cares and get that feedback. Like, you know, if a farm is, is makes a change in their feed, how does that affect the taste? Uh, if it doesn't really affect the taste, but it is better for the planet, do the end consumers care enough to to pay for that? Well, if you're selling in a commodity sales channel where that nuance might not be told, no, the answer is no. There's no but if you can speak to your end consumers and we can put it in the newsletter and you can do a host an event once a year where your consumers actually get to come to the farm and have a dinner there and tell that story and be in the newsletter and have that, that information. Yes. That's where the, the direct consumer model allows uh, a healthy relationship between aquaculture and our relationship to seafood and end consumers and, uh, we've been able to do it actually in a in a 
quite authentic way where we, you know, we deliver carbon neutral, where, where uh, we're actually uh, partnered with an organization that's doing uh, creating carbon credits through open ocean uh, kelp reforestation projects. Uh, we are investing a percentage of all of our uh, profits back to, into into ocean conservation um, through the support of marine protected areas. We're shipping in totally uh, eco-friendly packaging, uh, no styrofoam. When we first started, we were doing completely no plastic, but we haven't yet been able to come back to that because the compostable vacuum seal bags that we we're using just aren't quite up to to quality yet. We're, Ooh, we're continuing good. to try to in. I mean. You're de dealing with food. Yeah, I mean, it, we're, it is a food grade product that we're that we were sourcing from a really cool company uh, that was producing it from Kosova. Uh, but uh, the the challenge of keeping that plastic in close proximity to dry ice um, it just didn't preserve the product as well as we needed. We were losing the the seal on the on the freezer safe uh, vacuum seal bags at too high a percentage and it just so we, we're going to continue to, to invest in, in R&D on that side um, there's some advancements on uh, kelp based plastics and which would be ideal I mean from the story perspective and also from like say the circle perspective but to, to, to get to that you went from restaurant to direct to consumer forcefully like how how ready was the consumer are you um, you say we open a much bigger market potentially, obviously. Um, how has that been? Has the consumer responded strong enough to keep the fish swimming and also to keep these farms going? Or did you have to scale down a lot? Like, how has that been? And, and how's the response been? And, and now we're talking the end of the summer 2022. Um, how had those two years been basically in, in terms of consumer demand or consumer response? It's been really great. It's been overwhelmingly good. We haven't done any advertising and it's just continued to grow, uh, mostly word of mouth. You know, the biggest challenges are uh, the logistics of, of product. So, you know, we all know those challenges, but the, the model of working a, you know, scaling a CSA is, is really what we're doing. So who are the farms that uh, have good relationships with processors or in close proximity to uh, international supply chains? We can put it onto a container and ship it and, you know, getting into a port that's not backlogged. Those are the biggest challenges for us, right? Um, and, and as long as we're really methodical about uh, which farms that we're supporting and, and, and can, and can predictably bring into our warehouse. It seems to be working pretty smoothly. We've had hiccups on like the packaging and the, the, the vacuum seal bags and things like that. But the farms are, are really on board. You know, that the, there's not a, another market out there that is providing the sort of feedback loops. You know, you have like the, the whole foods of the world's. And I would say that they're pushing the envelope, but we're trying to be the 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 forefront. We're trying to really be the thought leaders and, and create the most demand. So, for example, we take a sample from every lot that we receive and send it to a laboratory that quantifies the parts per billion, the presence of heavy metals. And we publish transparently the certificate of analysis and the 
the uh, mercury levels on our fish. And we're doing that because A, it gives us information about whether there was a change in the feed. Uh, it quantifies the health uh, levels and it holds the, the farms accountable uh, and gives the assurance to, to the customers that this is absolutely a cleaner product than what you're going to find anywhere else. And it is what they say it is. Not only does it come from a farm that has been quantified or, or certified by a third-party audit for sustainability, but it's also been uh, certified clean uh, per this the, the certificate of analysis. So what we're trying to do is really push a model that drives aquaculture as quickly as we can towards those values that we believe you know the when when i first heard about aquaculture that was this potential solution to feed the world a clean healthy sustainable food system well what were the challenges that prevented that and a lot of that surprisingly was not you know challenges with the ocean as much as it was challenges with the uh, the supply Never chain, the, yeah. the, the ecosystem, the, the economies and the incentives that were built around it. And so we're trying to address those core issues in order to sit, to tell farms to that there is a safe and healthy way that you can invest in best practices for advancing the innovations on regenerative aquaculture practices. And, and do you see like these multi-species systems, the ideal permaculture one you, you mentioned, is that on the horizon? Is it still very far away? Is that maybe like that complexifying, which we talk often about on farms, is that something happening or starting to happen? Or is it, okay, we really have to fix feed because that's the biggest, by far the biggest lever for change. And, and then we look at other things. Uh there are small scale farms doing it. Uh, there's a number of universities doing it. There are uh, individual components being done. Um, so, for example, there's kelp farms being sited next to uh, salmon farms because, uh, so what you talked about earlier, the manure or the effluent from a salmon farm is in high concentrations a toxic. Uh, nutrient that can create an unhealthy environment. But in nature, there's actually no such thing as waste, right? So in nature, there's a symbiotic balance between that nitrogen and something else. And, and what is that? In, in, the, in, in the case of citing kelp next to it, the kelp is absorbing a lot of those nutrients. Uh, a shellfish farm, a a sea cucumber farm, the scallops, all of these um, organisms have a, an ability to work with the, the finfish, but it's a matter of, of one changing the model and creating the incentives for those farms. So if you're a salmon farmer and you want to sell your products without without fear that there's a limit of, on the buyers, you're going to sell to the big commodity uh, distributors and they care about different things than um, the end consumers do. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, yeah, exactly. So what we're trying to do is say to that big farm, 
you know, you have this other concession, you have this site where you could grow a brand that is synonymous with not only a healthy, delicious salmon, but your brand could be synonymous also with your scallops and your seaweed products and your mussels and your sea cucumber. And by having all those uh, products under your brand, we will buy everything that you produce. And so that's kind of the Cetopia model. And there are there. So there are a number of, of farms that are that are experimenting with this and are taking that risk but it, a lot of it comes down to just you know the, the risk factors for them you know the, the the business model and, and the incentives and and so what would you tell investors that are listening um i mean it's difficult to say what's the most neglected piece of the regenerative agri aquaculture space because it seems to be all relatively neglected um, but where would you point them obviously without giving investment advice but what would you be let's say we're doing this in stage at a big um, ocean conference, like where would you tell them to, to go and, and dive or go and dig deeper or to understand more? Is that the algae space? Is that these multi species together? Is it the CPG brands or is it like creating these distribution channels that reward these things? What is your feeling most, most neglected in the space? I think you have to ask the consumer what they want in, in, and re and give that to them right so what does the consumer want the consumer wants to eat something that's delicious and healthy and sustainable and right now what they're looking for is salmon and where do they go they go to alaskan salmon because they've been told that wild-caught alaskan salmon is the healthiest but in reality if you're gonna put that product under the microscope and look at the mercury levels or the PCBs or the sustainability uh, or the omega-3 levels, can you produce a better product? And I think you absolutely can. And there are farms doing it. So I would tell say that the best place for an investor to, to be looking is, you know, it, it's what are the, what are the products that are meeting the consumer's need or getting closer to it and how do we produce more of that and i think that those products are it's a it's a it's it's the fin fish right so what's limiting fin fish is feed components um and not that it's not being done but the 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 unit economics aren't quite there yet, you know? So how do we bring more scale to that? And, uh, and education and transparency is, is one of those things that getting more awareness to the benefits of aquaculture and the benefits of a regenerative aquaculture farm. So there's a lot of money, unfortunately, uh, spreading misinformation about farms. And in some cases it's, it's well served because there are a lot of commodity farms out there that suck and they're competing with the uh, artisan fisheries of people who, you know, have, you know, the best intentions to be good stewards of their local, in, uh, you know, waters, but not all, but it, that's, it's doing a disservice to the advancement of aquaculture. Right. So, 
I guess I didn't, I don't know if I answered your question because I don't have a clear answer other than, you know, what we've been doing with Cetopia is really just focus on building that a market that's going to create those incentives for the farms and, and components within, uh, that are, that are supporting those farms. I believe that, 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 you know, that's where I've put my energy because I felt like the biggest problem was the, you know, the, the delivery, the transparency, the, the feedback loops, um, and so to flip the question, because actually you get, you gave a, a very clear answer, but it, it is different if you're on that other side. So let's say you are managing a billion dollars and you had to put it to work. I'm assuming it's going to be in regenerative aquaculture. I'm asking this question, not because I want to know a dollar amount, but I want to know what would you prioritize? Where would you spend most of your energy in this case, quite significant resources? If I were in charge of a billion dollar fund with a traditional, let's say, 10 year investment structure, I would look at innovations around aquaculture technologies, monitoring, testing, cleaning. Also look at supply chain logistics, like transportation, traceability, enabling software, hardware, packaging that extends shelf life, reduces environmental footprint, and direct consumer supply chains like Cetopia that connect farms directly to consumers and create this direct feedback loop. Perhaps I'd also look at some mid to late stage investment opportunities with established farms or feed manufacturers. But realistically, I'd prefer to manage maybe more like an evergreen fund with a structure that can focus on the long-term capital appreciation without time barriers. One that meshes well with entrepreneurs looking to grow their businesses sustainably and truly foster regenerative aquaculture. In that case, I would look at investments across the supply chain to drive real change in the dynamic of our relationship with the oceans with an investment thesis for creating a true Cetopia on the blue planet. As such, I would be incentivized to invest in innovative feeds, in innovative aquaculture farms, advancing IMTA and RAS aquaponics and urban farming into retail brands, into processing facilities, into packaging that it that extends the shelf life, reduces waste, and creates a circular economics into the distribution, a global network of distribution hubs, education. There's a ton of, of investment that needs to be done in education and testing and traceability. We need more uh, testing, not only in aquaculture, but in wildcat products to create those right incentives. And in general management of, uh, of our resources. So how would that allocation look? I'd probably put in a lot into those innovative feeds to help bring economies of scale to, to sustainable feeds produced from microalgaes and bacteria, insects, yeasts, and even invasive species. Maybe let's say 15% allocation just in feed. Uh, farms are really important though. We need to be developing more innovative farms and really helping bring uh, IMTA RAS, aquaponics, and urban farming closer to the distribution centers. Um, so, you know, probably upwards of 40% of that would go towards shrimp farms and, and, and salmon farms. Uh, sable fish would probably be a little bit lower. Sediola, Riviana, Quintana, Lalandi, all of the jacks, the yellowtails, um, sea breams, the snapper, the kimidae, the sea bass, scallops are really important. We need more scallop farms. The, Lantern, basket, scallops farms, oyster farms, kelp farms, seaweed farms, sea cucumbers, as we've mentioned, urchins, lobster, crab, lumpfish, air mundi, and other underappreciated um, herbivores, and even maybe something like sardines. There's a lot of innovation that needs to happen on the farm, so there'll probably be a big portion of that 
investment. But retail brands is also super important. Probably, let's say, 15% uh, would be invested into retail brands to bring these products center to the plate to reduce waste. And part of that would also, uh, we would need advancements on processing. I would like to see, I would probably be investing in processing facilities that can make more innovative products from the offal, from the livers, from the hearts, making bone broth, seafood bone broth, I think would be a really uh, uh, amazing product line, more smoked products, more jerkies, more pet foods, just to reduce waste and to increase profit margins across the supply chain. But then, you know, if we were looking at packaging, that would be a, a, probably a minority investment in innovations on compostable bags and compostable insulations. There's, there's some, uh, very innovative uh, projects coming up with algae and mushroom and fish scales to produce these sort of products, so these insulations, these packagings. But distribution is really important. The cold chain distribution um, logistics, having a chain of distribution centers across the United States and across the world, innovation on AI-assisted distribution, the last mile cold chain distribution is super important. It hasn't yet been defined who's going to be the Amazon of cold chain distribution. A lot of these, let's say, archaic uh, cold chain warehouses haven't yet embraced innovations. Uh, definitely not to assist that last mile on the direct-to-consumer side. I'd love to see a lot more investment there. and I would probably put a pretty significant investment there, maybe 10% of our allocation. But education is going to drive a lot of this. Not as expensive, but it is exceptionally valuable. I think investments in documentary films, like the biggest little farm was such a powerful farm for uh, education around permaculture and regenerative farming on land. We need the biggest little farm story for aquaculture. General media and education is going to be really important too in schools at the farm level and also policy, environmental lobby. We really need to see changes. You know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, organization NOAA has really been trying to push aquaculture, but has continued to affront these this pushback from environmental groups. And we, we need to have more education and lobby to help bring properly cited, properly managed aquaculture closer to the markets. You know, the U.S. is still importing way more seafood than it should. Um, and traceability and testing, I think that's going to help drive change across the industry with you know heavy metal testing, toxicity testing nutritional testing, the validation of, of those omega-3 levels versus omega-6 levels on labeling on every single seafood product, um, traceability across the cold chain and, and fair trade certifications and certified sustainable um, certifications. We need a lot more of that. And I'm not just talking about within aquaculture. I'd like to see these sort of testings and certifications across wild-caught seafood. I think that'll really help drive change. So, yeah, hopefully that uh, outlines a, a bit of my vision for how I'd invest a billion dollars because there is a enormous market in seafood and change needs to happen. But we need a sort of long-term vision on how to align our relationship to really create that Seatopia. I think it's a perfect way to, to end uh, this, this conversation. I want to thank you so much, James, for, for your time and for sharing and uh, I hope it's not the last time, uh, first of all, we talk, but also where we look into regenerative aquaculture, regenerative ocean farming, uh, because it's a uh, uh, very neglected, at least on our podcast, for sure, uh, space. And it's such an important one, uh, such a potential one, not only because the, the potential in terms of, of changes in practices, 
but the potential in terms of space, obviously there's a lot of water, but also the potential simply in terms of, of uh, biology, simply in terms of um, feed to food ratios, in terms of the quantity of biomass you can grow in 3D. I mean, the the the, the opportunities are are truly uh, truly magnificent. So I want to thank you for for putting a spotlight on that today and for all the work you do. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope that it, I was able to articulate something of value to your audience. I feel like we kind of wandered all over, but uh, at the end of the day, there's just so much nuance and, and so much story to be told. Uh, I appreciate you creating a forum for people to to, to be asking these questions and, and learn a bit, bit, bit more. And I hope that we can continue this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links discussed, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash post. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.